Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. My name is Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 42 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And after a few episodes of hiatus, today I'm joined by resident AWS superstar, Dean Samuels. And to add another dimension to the show, today we're separated by 7,500 kilometers with myself in Melbourne, Australia, and Dean in Hong Kong. Hello, Dean, and welcome back. Yeah, hey there, Shane. It indeed has been a bit of a hiatus for me uh, away from Tech Chat, so it's actually awesome to be back. Um, I, I, I have still been an avid listener of, of uh, Tech Chat whilst uh, I have been away, and I understand that you've been carrying the Tech Chat flag for a while. Is that right? Indeed. And when it comes to tech thought leadership activities, it's been pretty awesome experience to be able to share in this format. I totally agree. It's a really a highlight of my role here at AWS to be involved in Tech Chat, to be able to talk about technologies with like-minded individuals and really talk about how uh, technology can be those innovation accelerators for our customers. And if I'm not wrong, Shane, uh, this is also the first time we've co-hosted together. Is that right? It is. Uh, the dynamic duo, I believe. Yes, maybe the start of a beautiful relationship, perhaps. Perhaps, Dean, perhaps, and we will see. Yes. So maybe we can take a look at what is, what we have in store for today, Shane. Um, of course, I would expect that, like with all tech chats, we'll probably do a recap of some of the interesting services and feature launches, uh, maybe talk a little bit about the global infrastructure announcements, and, of course, uh, some of the upcoming marketing activities. But uh, what else do we have specifically in store? Yeah, okay. So in our last episode, we had a special focus on some of the niche services that are important to our application developers and the operations community. So today, we wanted to share some details with what we've been doing specifically in the compute and networking space. How's that sound, Dean? Oh, well, compute and networking, that's my jam. Let's do this. Alrighty. Okay, so before we do that, summits are back and oh, are they back? So AWS Summits are our free global events that bring cloud computing community together to connect, collaborate, and learn. So uh, Shane, that's interesting. Uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit more on why our listeners should look to attend these summits? I mean, it wasn't just so long ago, actually just a few months ago, that we actually had our reInvent conference in Las Vegas. All right. So the short answer, Dean, is continued learning. But the long answer, as you know, with most of these questions, it's an opportunity to share and learn experiences with other customers, partners, and AWS folks alike. Technology rapidly changes in our lives, and you, and you really need to keep at the forefront. Uh, don't we know that uh, as a solution architects uh, can understand that? And uh, don't forget also, it's an, a great time to, to uh, network with some of our customers and partners, maybe over a beer or your uh, preferred beverage of choice, and really talk about their own journey and their own experiences and some of the experiments uh, they're running. So, so maybe can you take us through the schedule for the Summit Series in 2019? Yeah, okay. So we recently had our Milan and Tel Aviv Summit, some great pictures on Twitter, but what's coming up? All right, so there's Santa Clara on the 27th of March. There's Bogota, Colombia on the 28th of March and Paris on the 2nd of April. There's Brussels on the 9th of April and Singapore on the 10th and 11th of April. On the updates front, no new regions to announce today, still 20 regions with Stockholm being the latest to launch. And it's hard to believe as I was preparing for this show that CloudFront, our content delivery network that delivers content with low latency, 
is static on 166 pops. I think that's probably the first time since we've run one of these episodes we haven't added an edge location. But I say static, 65 cities across 29 countries, there's a pop not too far from most places in the world. Yeah, we may have not um, announced any new regions and, and new pops in this episode, Shane, but um, special mention must actually go out to our Hong Kong region, which will actually be uh, launching in the not-too-distant future. It's actually in the advanced stages of, uh, of rollout, so I'm very excited uh, to, uh, to see what's happening in my part of the world and, and of course, so are our customers. Okay, so rewind five years ago. So in 2014, we launched Amazon Linux. And to recap to those who haven't had that perplexed look on their face when I mentioned Amazon Linux, Amazon Linux is a supported and maintained Linux operating system that's maintained by us, Amazon. So without diving into the marketing spiel, it's our take on a Linux distribution, and it's based on CentOS. And because it's based on CentOS, you can use package managers like Yum to install packages such as Apache, Tomcat, and so on. And with Amazon Linux too, you can even run it on on-premises with modern hypervisors such as Zen, Hyper-V, and VMware. But as I mentioned just a few seconds ago, Amazon Linux was released in 2014. And whilst we provide LTS, or long-term support for this OS, support for Amazon Linux ceases in approximately one year's time in June of 2020. Before you go on, Shane, so when you say uh, support for Amazon Linux is ending in June 2020, is, so are you talking about the first iteration, the first version, correct? Correct, yeah. So what I'm talking about here is you know, security and OS level updates. So you'll still be able to run Amazon Linux on EC2, but we will cease providing security and product feature updates for this operating system. Right, and then we'll have full coverage for Amazon Linux too. Correct, because that is still under long-term support. Sure. Excellent. So right. uh, if, in, if you are in a situation when you are where you're running Amazon Linux, what do you do? Good question. All right. So ideally, you subscribe to two common patterns. So the first pattern is cattle, not pets. You may have heard of that before, mm -hmm. where each instance is disposable. You don't feed it. You don't water it. Whatever you do, you don't give it a friendly name. You, typically, you don't log into these machines. And if there are issues, you might modify your source control platform and via CICD, you bring up a new instance. And the second, and I guess in order to deliver the magic I just talked about, you need to subscribe to is infrastructure as code. And leverage DSLs or declarative syntax languages like AWS CloudFormation or popular third-party DSLs like Terraform, you know, to define your environment by code. So this is ideal and something I would always prescribe to my customers. But the reality is customers are at different stages of maturity. And it's easy for me to say this, but even the largest companies will have these snowflake pets. As part of any good hygiene, you know, your IT SDLC, you want to be on a supported operating system. So, you know, if something does go wrong, you know, you're able to gain support. So in the case of Amazon Linux, as it nears the end of LTS or long-term support, we now have introduced the Amazon Linux Upgrade Assistance, Upgrade Assistant, which should prevent unwanted surprises when these upgrades take place. So the pre-upgrade assistant for Amazon Linux makes it easy to migrate from Amazon Linux to Amazon Linux 2. You can run the pre-upgrade assistant on your Amazon Linux installation and check for incompatibilities. So when we're talking about incompatibilities here, we're looking for things like packages, libraries, services, command line options, and, and so on. So the, what the assistant will do is produce a report outlining any potential incompatibilities and offer suggestion on how to mitigate them. So how do you run this, Dean? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good point. And I like the idea of the patterns, uh, especially those, uh, I think you mentioned cattle, not pets. It's, it's really a, a transient environment where you have 
these uh, not long running um, uh, environments. Obviously, it's not always going to be the case. But uh, if you are truly looking at automa automation and your workflows like CICD, you want environments where you don't have to be logging into these instances if you're leveraging things like uh, EC2. But of course, as you mentioned, we do have customers that have these long run running environments, which they may want to, to upgrade. So we want to provide a facility to allow them to do that. And so to use this assistant, uh, you will need to install both the pre-upgrade assistant and the Amazon Linux module by running uh, essentially a pseudo command. So I'll, I'll read this out, um, but we'll have some uh, notes and references where you can actually uh, read more info. But essentially, you're going to do your yum installation on the command line. So you follow your normal standard uh, yum install uh, command, and you're going to install the packages of pre-upgrade-assistant and pre-upgrade-assistant-all Toll two, <laughs> so a bit of a mouthful, but like I said, we'll have some references uh, in order to run that upgrade. But once you uh, once you actually do run that uh, uh, run the assistant with sudo uh, pre-upgrade, this will take some time. As what it's going to do is actually analyze your packages, libraries, and services, and there's actually a relationship between time and the number of modules you have installed. So if you're using it for LAMP purposes, for example, it actually may not take too much time. But if your instance runs everything, which hopefully it doesn't, but if it does run everything, including the kitchen sink, it may actually take some time. And so what will happen is once it's finished, it produces a nice, pretty looking HTML report in a, uh, a directory that is viewable via the web browser. The actual compatibility results are classified into passing or failing and further into informational failures and failures that need manual inspection. So Dean, my takeaway from this, apart from being a great tool, is it really reduces the risk profile of upgrading and addressing your SDLC hygiene needs. Yeah, that's right, Shane. And you know, we've seen here where we're really trying to cater for all types of permutations of using Amazon Linux. So those customers who do have these long running environments where there is an upgrade path to Amazon Linux too. And of course, those customers who have more of an automation, uh, short lived transient environment can use their standard practices for actually rolling out uh, uh, to new uh, images based on Amazon Linux too. Yeah. And look, we like to keep it real in this show here. So I'll give you a real example of where a tool like this may come in handy. So rewind probably, you know, five to 10 years when a lot of organizations were making that migration from 32-bit to 64-bit. So I was using a, back in the Windows days, using an IAS ISAPI filter that was 32-bit, but wasn't 64-bit compatible. And it would be a tool like this that would identify, you know, maybe you've got a module running in Apache, etc that may not be compatible when you move to that new world. And this is just going to you know, prevent, I guess, unwanted surprises upon migration. Exactly. And you know, the last thing our customers want is those unwanted surprises. So to provide that uh, you know, seamless upgrade path is very important. And, and Shane, so I also hear that we've uh, introduced some uh, assistance around uh, containers as well. So we spoke about uh, EC2 instances, but another way of our customers running application and business logic is via containers. So can maybe talk a little bit about what we've released in terms of uh, container management? Yes. And, um, you know, we've spoken about classic virtual machines. Containers are becoming very popular today. And if I look back through my journey in IT, I remember building an orchestrator to bring a complex website. It was like 50 plus instances online. And why? Because you love coding. Well, <laughs> I love coding. I love automating and automating is cool. But, you know, powering systems online sometimes doesn't mean they'll start correctly. So even if you go back to your hypervisor days and, you know, you were to just bring every virtual machine 
online, sure, the virtual machine's online, but it doesn't always guarantee that the application will start correctly. Mm. And a typical one here is databases. You know, if a database engine isn't online, the consumer may not start. But not only will it not start, but it may not work until the database engine comes online and it may not automatically recover. So you got to remember everything in this world is not HTTP. So what do you do? Well, you've got a few options here. So if you are building an application, the best thing would be to embed some retry logic in your application. So HTTP as a protocol obviously has this mechanism built in, but this could be something like you know exponential backoffs, algorithms, and this is done at the application layer. But let's just say you're using a COTS application, so consumer off-the-shelf software, and you can't change the application logic. Perhaps you don't control it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, you can create your own orchestrator to manage and bring you know these instances up and down as per your application requirements. And option two is what I've just described, what I've built in the past. But this translates to effort and consequently that translates to cost. Yeah, exactly. And as much as I know you do like uh, coding there, Shane, you know, at, at times your coding efforts can probably be focused on uh, more important things that's really going to differentiate uh, what you're, you're trying to build rather than this sort of op- operations and management stuff of, uh, of infrastructure, especially when trying to time the uh, the startup of these various components of your application. And like you mentioned, your your database uh, starting up first before your application starts and, and connects to it. So I'm actually happy to announce that, that as we move into a more container-oriented world, World, which we're seeing a lot of our customers move move to, especially from the uh, the portability um, benefits that containers actually um, uh, does bring. Um, we actually just la- launched a new feature within Amazon ECS called Enhanced Container Dependency Mapping. Now, before we get any further here, whilst uh, whilst the task definition is consistent between Fargate and ECS launch types, this feature is actually only supported on Amazon ECS and not Fargate. Um, Shane, maybe uh, you want to take this time just to explain to our listeners the difference between Fargate and ECS. Amazon ECS, or Amazon Elastic Container Service, is our highly scalable, high-performance container orchestration service that supports docking containers and allows you to easily run and scale containers running on AWS. But you still need to manage the underlying hardware so that ECS ultimately runs on EC2 instances. Whereas Fargate is a compute engine for ECS, that allows you to run containers without having to manage servers or clusters. So you simply throw containers, your Docker containers, at Fargate and we will run them on your behalf. Great. Thanks for that uh, explanation uh, there, Shane. I think it was very important to to make sure our listeners do understand that difference between Fargate and ECS because, as I mentioned, uh, the task definition is consistent. Whilst the task definition is consistent between Fargate and ECS launch types, the actual feature that we just announced is only supported on ECS and not actually Fargate. And how this actually works is we have added additional task definition parameters that actually enable you to define dependencies for container startup and shutdown, as well as a per container start and stop timeout value. So you can actually define these parameters in uh, uh, in your uh, in, in your profile. So in your JSON block, you would actually have a section uh, called depends on, and it has two values: essentially a container name reference and an actual condition. Uh, the container name is actually a string value for the container to which it will depend on. Now, just a few things to note about this new announcement. Uh, today, it actually only supports single container dependencies, but obviously you can chain containers together. 
the other parameter, which is the exciting one, and that's and that's the condition. It is also a string value, but with the following conditions behavior. You can actually have start as the condition, and this will, in essence, emulate the condition of links and volumes today. It validates that a dependent container is actually started before permitting other containers to start. And so this is how you can have your ordering. Uh, the condition could be complete. And so the complete condition validates that a dependent container runs to completion, i.e. exits, before permitting other containers to start. This can actually be useful for non-essential containers that run a script and then exit, remembering that here some containers aren't to be long-lived. Uh, in addition to start and complete, we then have success. So success is the condition that is similar to complete, but it also requires that the container exits with a zero status. Okay, and then we have the success condition in addition to start and complete. And so the success condition is the same as complete, but it also requires that the container exits with a zero status. And then finally, we have the healthy condition. And so the healthy condition validates that the dependent container passes its Docker health check before permitting other containers to start. This actually requires that the dependent container has health checks configured, and it only does this one at, once at container startup, which shouldn't be an issue given no doubt you will have amazing monitoring in place to detect issues in flight, either via systems like CloudWatch, X-Ray, or other APM solutions. All right, so let's make this real for our listeners team. It's TechChat after all. Yeah. So a practical use case here may be for container sidecars. So as an example, you might, your task definition may run a reverse proxy or a telemetry container that must start before and shut down after the other containers in a task or an initialization container that must complete its work before the other containers in the task can start. So previously, you, know, you would have to you know, write your own code as we defined before or use a maybe a different form of scheduler embed application logic. So there are container orchestration platforms out there but what this feature does, it continues in my mind to round out the feature set of ECS by providing a really low friction way to implement yet another safety net in your application, ensuring you know, you're delivering 200s rather than dreaded 5XX errors to your clients, assuming it's HTTP, of course. Exactly. We love the 200s, but not so much the 500s. <laughs> yeah, no, no good. Alrighty. So Dean, I was with a customer the other day and we were running a session on AWS Transit Gateway as the future state architecture for their AWS environment, which you know their environment is, I'd like to think, relatively complex with hundreds of AWS accounts and thousands of VPCs. And for them, Transit Gateway makes a lot of sense. Shane, I tell you what, you've really welcomed me back with open arms talking about compute and networking. Love the networking and private link. But uh, now before, Anything for you, Dan? <laughs> before we get into uh, what we have announced regarding private link, uh, I think it'd be important to let our listeners know who may not be familiar with Transit Gateway, um, where it is actually a service that was released last year, and it enables customers to connect VPCs um, and their own on-premise networks to a single gateway managed by us. And so basically, you may even have built your own in the past using services like HA proxy or partner provided systems running on EC2. And so Transit Gateway is an attractive pattern um, when you have complex account structures and lots of VPCs to prevent VPC mesh peering, or is that VPC mess peering? Aha, uh -huh, dad joke. 
It is. I need the, the ding here, Dean. All right. So, look, not all customers are created equal. And, you know, you often question the cost versus complexity for Transit Gateway. You know, if you have a simple, somewhat simple AWS account layout. Now, we've spoken on this show about Private Link in the past, but as a refresher, Private Link, as the name implies, provides a private provides private connectivity between VPCs, AWS services, and on-premise applications by only exposing specific ports with an NLB fronting any such instances that you've got exposed. Now, in the context of multiple VPCs with VPC peering, with Private Link, you simply expose an ENI, which is an elastic network interface, into the target VPC and expose the service. And let's say you have 10 VPCs and you wanted to expose a web server in the nine other, you would leverage private link to create a private link into the nine other VPCs, and that's a valid pattern. And we've now introduced more choice to this equation. And I like to think of VPC peering and private link as you know they're boolean, they're one or they're zero. But we've just introduced a bit that's neither toggled high or toggled low. So let me explain. So you can now access private link endpoints that are exposed through a peered intra and inter-region VPC. So I'm going to pause just for a few seconds here and let that sink in. So private link endpoints that are exposed through a peered intra and inter-region VPC. Yeah, so this is a, probably a time where you really wish you had a whiteboard that you could uh, display somewhere over a podcast, but uh, unfortunately we can't. But um, maybe we can go a little bit deeper into you know why you would want to do this. Correct. All right. So why would you want to do this? Well, with functions and services, we usually actually always create these to fill a gap in our product offerings. And this is where this new feature fits in. So if you consider the following example, Dean, you know, I know you're, you're extremely clever in your, you know, in your time, I believe you're running a widgets business and it's booming. And as we say here, it's gone global. Yeah. Awesome widgets. I've got awesome widgets. Awesome widgets. Yeah, for sure. All right. So, but with all this growth, you know, you've been a bit lazy here. You haven't had time to refactor your core application, which is a monolith. It's a three-tier stack with each tier in a separate VPC. Well, using this approach, you could use private link to expose the application tier, so that's the middle tier, to the presentation tier, you know, the front end serving your consumers, and then peer the VPCs back to your database tier. So what I do see is this approach filling a gap you know, and ease operational overheads whilst you're in the process of refactoring to, I guess, a more modern architecture. It enables you to, in essence, you know, embrace a hybrid approach, you know, during those transactions. Yeah, it's really another great example of that undifferentiated heavy lifting where we do have a lot of customers who might have this multi-VPC configuration where, as you mentioned, Shane, uh, different layers of their application stack are spread across these, uh, these VPCs and even in different regions as well. And then being able to peer these VPCs together without having to add complexity to their network uh, infrastructure. Okay, Shane, I want to actually change tact here uh, a little. We've spoken a, a bunch about uh, some of the technology and did a bit of a deep dive on, on compute and networking. Uh, the tact I want to change to is, is taking a step back and, and talk a little bit about some of the experiences that you and I have seen as part of the solutions architect uh, function, specifically around you know, what are the emerging technology trends we're actually seeing with our, with our customers? You know, what are the specific areas of uh, technology that 
are really helping customers innovate, helping customers experiment, and helping customers deliver that uh, positive business outcome and, uh, and and unique user experience to their own users and uh, and customers. Indeed, Dean. You know, as a solutions architect, we are exposed to lots of different architectures. You know, working across a variety of customers on various stages of adoption. And I'm very fortunate to have first-hand experience and insights on how customers are thinking about their customer and employee experiences in the future. Yeah, exactly. And so based on our experience, we really see there are these five key areas of emerging technology trends that customers are using to enable innovation and deliver to their customers. Uh, number one, we see a lot of uh, innovation and acceleration um, in the analytics, machine learning, and AI space. You know, the vast majority of machine learning being done in the cloud today is actually being done on AWS. And when we talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence, we actually have a, an extensive portfolio of services at all three layers of the technology stack. Um, more customers reference using AWS for machine learning than any other provider. That we do, but what do you mean by three layers of the technology stack? That's a great question. Um, now, at AWS, our mission is really to put machine learning technology into the hands of the everyday developer. And what we mean by that is that we actually have a wide range of offerings for customers based on the level of expertise and desired machine learning solutions. So if you think about it in three separate distinct layers, you first have the, 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 the first layer or the, the lower layer. The lower layer is where we're providing technologies to those deep machine learning specialists who really understand what it means to build their own algorithms, train their models, and actually deploy their models. So these are uh, specialists who want access to the various frameworks for machine learning. So whether it's things like TensorFlow or CAFE uh, or Apache MXNet, they really understand how to deploy that infrastructure. And again, they really understand how to uh, build, deploy, build, train, and deploy their models. It provides a lot of customized uh, with the customer. But then you have the second tier. The second tier is geared towards uh, organizations and customers who may not have those deep machine learning specialists or experts. However, they do understand what it means to go about training, uh, training the models. So what they actually want is access to these models through frameworks where they don't have to worry about deploying the infrastructure themselves. And so we see uh, services like Amazon uh, SageMaker, which we released at reInvent 2017, being adopted by quite a large number of uh, customers. And then finally, we, uh, Shane, we actually see the top layer or the layer three. And this is all about accessing artificial intelligence services through the call of an API. So you can imagine that you're actually a developer that doesn't have that machine learning expertise, but you want to integrate some type of artificial intelligence into your application, something like image analysis or video analytics or maybe natural language processing. So you imagine you being able to code into your application a simple API call to deliver that actual service. You don't have to have any knowledge of the underlying framework. You don't have to have any knowledge of the underlying model being used. It's simply a matter of making that uh, API call. And we do honestly believe that uh, going forward in the, over the next couple of years, most major software development projects will actually incorporate some form of artificial intelligence or machine learning component because we have providers like AWS um, offering machine learning technologies across these three uh, stacks. And so today we have customers like the American Heart Association, like Cathay Pacific, uh, like Formula One, like GE Healthcare, that are actually using machine learning technologies into their own applications. So Dean, uh, where do you sit in that 
you know, three tier here. I'm, I know where I sit. I'm definitely on the uh, the top layer. I'm definitely an API guy. Um, you know, I'm 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 more of an infrastructure guy, but I can handle my API. So you know, definitely using services like Amazon Recognition or Amazon Poly for your uh, for your text to speech. Uh, I actually can incorporate that quite easily into some of my applications. What about yourself? And that's it. Oh, look, I'm definitely on that third, you know, layer as well. And, you know, my background is probably, you know, not too dissimilar from yours. Uh, you know, generic infrastructure background, hack of about 10 different programming languages and the ability to implement. So I was playing with recognition, you know, probably about a year ago, having it parse all my images and rewrite the EXIF tags to see, you know, what's in those images. And it's really, really, really easy. It is really putting, you know, AI, ML, into the hands of the everyday developer. Absolutely. So what ne what's next, Shane? Uh, what, what other areas do you see as emerging? Okay, so I see databases. You know, over the last few decades, companies, you know, they've really felt constrained by their commercial database options. You know, I know I've worked for organizations in the past and it's just a habit of, uh, you know, putting everything in the database. Mm. And, you know, if we're being honest, they've probably felt pretty unhappy for database providers. They're Offerings are generally expensive, they're proprietary, they have high lock-in, absolutely, and their licensing terms can be, you know, punitive at best. And that's why many customers have moved, you know, really to the open source database engines like Postgres and MySQL. Open source alternatives require a lot of tuning, you know, which can be a bit of a negative at some times. Mm. And customers want the openness of these open source databases, but the performance of commercial grade databases. And that's why AWS has spent a few years, you know, we've built out our own database engines like Aurora, which is a fully managed MySQL and Postgres compatible offerings that offer at least the same durability and availability of the commercial engines, but typically, you know, at a fraction of the cost. Aurora, Dean, continues to be the fastest growing service in AWS history with tens of thousands of customers using Aurora for their relational databases. And, you know, this number has increased by approximately two and a half times in the last year, which is amazing. So you've got customers like, you know, the Airbnbs, um, Autodesk, etc. you know, running on these platforms. So moving on from database, Dean, what else? What is number three on the list? Yeah, so before I get to the next one, which is uh, IoT and specifically Edge, it's, it's really interesting how you mentioned about databases. You know, traditionally customers, when they are looking at building a new application, they'll always go to a relational database, you know, and it will typically be one of those uh, commercial or enterprise databases that you referred to. But just to give them that flexibility and, and option to really choose the best tool for the job, right? So not only being restricted to these relational databases, but moving to things like graph databases or key value stores and you know, other ways to really store uh, their data and allow their applications to access the data in an optimal way. But the uh, one of the things that customers also want is the ability to access uh, cloud type services outside the cloud. Now that might sound a bit uh, funny to say, but you know, at the end of the day, the speed of light is the speed of light, meaning that regardless of what we do in terms of implementing new technologies, uh, accessing technology in the cloud can introduce uh, high levels of latency, especially if you're running in sites which might be uh, very uh, inconsistent in terms of network coverage or network access, where you might have uh, those network uh, interruptions that are happening on a regular occurrence. Maybe it's a latency sensitive application that you're actually running. Um, so regardless of the bandwidth that you 
have to the cloud, uh, the latency is going to deeply affect your application. And so we actually see a lot of uh, innovation and, uh, and, uh, and, and experimentation around IoT and the edge. Uh, I would say that about 10 years from now, um, it is actually most likely that cust uh, companies on-premises footprint will not actually be servers. Those will actually virtually be all in the cloud. Their on-premises footprint will really be connected devices. Now you can imagine billions of these connected devices will be in the home, in the office, in factories, on ships, in oil fields, on cars, agricultural fields, the list really goes on and on. And so these sensors already are everywhere today. Um, I'm sure many folks listening there are probably wearing devices that are continually reporting information uh, to a, uh, an edge device or maybe a, a cloud-based environment. Um, these devices are typically small. They have a small amount of CPU and a small amount of disk. And so this is why the cloud is disproportionately important to supplement those devices. The vast majority of big IoT implementations are actually running on AWS today because AWS has a much more functionality for IoT and at the edge that you'll find anywhere else. And so we have customers like Enel, who's a utility company in Europe, uh, iRobot, I'm sure many folks out there have their robot vacuum cleaners, uh, Panasonic, Avionics, Siemens, uh, NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, a lot of these customers are leveraging edge-based services, so whether it's things like, um, uh, like Greengrass uh, for running uh, your, your cloud-based services at the edge, including analytics and inferencing, uh, whether it's uh, looking at Deploy, deploying uh, IoT gateways, uh, for example, uh, uh, at, at the edge. Um, we really haven't even been, are not even close to being done innovating in this space. So, you know, for me, it is a very exciting area to be involved in. I believe, Dean, you know, there are three laws of IoT and one of them speaks around latency. You know, you know like for some applications, so it's maybe like it's medical or aviation, that latency may not be acceptable, to, you know, to communicate back to the cloud. And that's where I think edge computing has, you know, a really big area to grow in the next, you know, two, five, 10 years and, you know, in the future. Absolutely. All right. So number four here is serverless. So absolutely, it's a, you know, it's a theme we see every day out in the field. So if I was writing an application and how I, you know, advise my customers is, you know, serverless would be my de facto choice. And assuming there's no reason why I can't use service, serverless, that is where I'd be going. So it'd be serverless, be a containerized workload, and then back to traditional compute. So just, you know, going back here, 2014 was a good year. We had Amazon Linux and we also launched AWS Lambda. So which was our, you know, serverless computing platform that was event driven. And so with Lambda, you know, developers, we upload our code to the management console. It could be via things like SAM or other mechanisms. You define a trigger. So that could be, you know, potentially a file upload. It could be, you know, a message on a queue. It could be state change via things like step functions. And we will automatically run and scale the code with high availability. So, you know, complete and game changing. And what we see is Technologies like Lambda allow customers to completely re-architect their applications. So, you know, going from these, you know, monolithic, monolithic systems to single page apps where, you know, uh, the post on a form may end up going to an API gateway, which may trigger a Lambda function. What's great about this is customers pay only for the compute time they consume. So if it's 2 a.m. in the morning and no one's hitting this function, they pay nothing. So, you know, it's only pay for the time they consume. And that's just 
absolutely game changing. And if you think about how many customers are running on Lambda today, it's really astonishing. So, you know, five years ago, it was launched as a concept. And today there are hundreds of thousands of customers running on Lambda and the growth on Lambda is, you know, it's phenomenal year on year, you know, over 180%. So it's clear that this is not just a fad and it really shows, you know, how many customers, you know, really want to move down that serverless architecture and not having to think about servers and clusters at all and make that change, you know, towards a no ops future. Yeah. So Dean, that's... So, yeah, it's absolutely correct there, Shane. I mean, you know, again, comes back to that undifferentiated heavy lifting. So you can imagine a lot of our customers can really focus on uh, innovating on their application and business logic and just being able to upload that to an environment where we will actually take care of the resiliency, the scalability, the cost optimization, as you mentioned, being charged by only the time the function actually executes rather than when it may be, stay, uh, may be running idle because there's no actual um, uh, connectivity your actions being, being, being taken. But of course, just like databases, Shane, uh, you know, serverless is not a single solution for everything. We need to make sure that we are looking at the best tool for the job and for the use case. Mm. And so whilst you did absolutely mention about serverless being that de facto standard, you actually mentioned that, you know, containers would be your next uh, uh, point of view for certain applications that you might need to run that might be long running, for example, or just don't fit into that serverless uh, infrastructure. And so we are actually seeing more and more customers running containers over the last couple of years. And this in part is because they can now deploy workloads in much smaller chunks, maybe even going to microservices. Uh, and as people are building these microservices architecture, they can actually encapsulate those microservices into containers. And as I actually mentioned earlier in this podcast, it actually increases that portability. It's a lot easier to move things around, whether it's on cloud or actually off cloud. And so when we started working mm. on a container service in 2014, well, 2014 really was a busy year for us. Um, when we actually were looking at uh, uh, working on this service, uh, we launched the Amazon Elastic Container Service or ECS. Um, there actually wasn't any broad adoption, orchestration and management system for containers at the time. And so we've had a managed container service called ECS since 2014. It's the most capable and cloud integrated container service out there. And lots of customers run ECS, including uh, Capital One, uh, McDonald's, GoPro, and Mapbox. But we didn't stop there. Uh, over the last few years, people have become interested in running containers via the open source framework Kubernetes as well. And at reInvent this past November, we actually announced a new managed Kubernetes container offering, which became generally available in Q2, called Amazon Elastic Kubernetes Service, or EKS. Customers are pretty excited that they have a choice between two managed container services on AWS, but they've also been asking us to allow them to manage containers without having to worry about servers or clusters at all. Customers include FICO, GoDaddy, uh, Pearson, Verizon, Zendesk, and many others. And also at uh, reInvent, we launched the AWS Fargate service. And you mentioned this earlier in the podcast, Shane. And really, Fargate is focused on enabling customers to manage containers at the task layer. And Fargate will take care of the deployment and resiliency of the actual servers and clusters themselves. And so there's really a lot of excitement about Fargate chain, and it's off to a very good start with thousands of active developers already using it. Mm, and, you know, one of the reasons, you know, I think containers, you know, 
I, at least in the early on, you know, maintained a lot of uh, traction in the development community is it's that ability to, it works on my dev machine and it works in production because, you know, you can package everything up, you know, package it in that nice Docker container and just be able to grab it from your dev machine and, you know, maybe run it on a Docker host. Obviously today, you know, you would use like a CICD process to do this and, you know, in a bit more structured way. But I think, you know, not having to configure that big, heavy VM and, you know, completely portable has definitely aided in the traction of containers. Yeah, exactly right, Shane. And and really one of the reasons why we wanted to cover these five areas of emerging uh, technology trends uh, is because we'll actually be uh, covering these in much greater detail at those summit series we spoke about earlier in the podcast. Uh, You know, we're really seeing these aforementioned uh, trends as being those innovation accelerators for our customers. So to recap, we spoke about how to make your server and container management and operations much, much more efficient via Amazon Linux Upgrade Assistant and the Amazon ECS Enhanced Container Dependency Management. We also spoke about how applications in Amazon VPC can now securely access AWS private link endpoints across VPC peering connections, you know, allowing you to privately access services hosted on the AWS network in a highly available, scalable manner without using public IPs and without requiring the traffic to traverse the internet. And finally, we've spoken about some of our customers who are looking at emerging technologies to experiment and innovate for their business. Wow, that was uh, actually a very a lot to cover in such a short amount of time, Shane. It was, Dean, but I think this indeed may be the start of a beautiful relationship here. Well, I do hope so because I believe we're doing our Twitch live streaming event at Sydney Summit on 30th of April to the 2nd of May and uh, we'll actually be hosting face-to-face. So really looking forward to be working with you on that uh, initiative then. Yeah, and look, if any listeners are going to the AWS Sydney Summit, as Dean mentioned, on the 30th of April to the 2nd of May, come and say hi. So look, as always, we want to thank our listeners for our time today and we love to hear feedback. So if there is feedback please contact us on awstechchat at amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.